Good morning. How's everyone? Good. My name's Eric. If you don't know me, we'd love to meet in the courtyard, answer any questions. We have a welcome center out there. Uh, we can help you get connected to our church, give you a gift, and also online, we'd love to connect with you. And so if you contact us, we'd love to help connect you to our church and answer any questions you might have. Um, for uh, the members, we have our last class will be next Sunday for the reaffirmation and this Wednesday. And we'll have both services. And essentially, that's just going through the bylaw changes, the statement of faith changes, and just going over expectations of members and of the church leadership. Uh, reminder, it's not a country club. Uh, it's saying, hey, we want to be a part of the family. We want to be a part of what God is doing. Uh, we want to be accountable to the leaders who are watching over our souls, right? That Hebrews 13, 17. And so you have an opportunity to do that. And then if you're not a member, you're like, hey, I'd love to learn more about that. On October 16th, uh, we'll have a class at 1130. You'll be able to ask questions, see what we believe, what we do, how we do it, why we do it, and all those fun things. So we are in Matthew chapter 3. Um, keep in mind, so important to keep our storyline going and what is happening in Matthew 1, 2, and 3. All the characters, the people, um, their background, their familiarity with the Old Testament. Remember, Matthew is a Jewish gospel talking to a Jewish audience. So he has a lot of Old Testament images and, and Old Testament passages that are going to pop and have so much meaning when we get to these texts. So make sure you're taking notes, um, you're reading throughout the week. We're not always going to have time to read through every Old Testament um, prophecy or, or use of Old Testament. So you're reading through that, you're writing that down, and you're putting the pieces together. Um, it's a blessed thing when you can see how God's Word works as one cohesive whole from beginning to end. And that would be my heart for you to be able to do that. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump right into Matthew chapter 3. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much um, for Matthew 3, and we thank you for Jesus, that we get to learn about who he is and what he did and how it all comes together. Um, it's my prayer that your words would be lifted high, that you would be loved, adored, and worshipped, and that we would read Matthew 3 and just fall in love with the beauty of Jesus. They would see the work that he has done uh, that we would look and, and have a heart that wants to always repent of our sin and trust you and trust um, your ways that are higher than our ways. And so we pray this morning for your word to lead us and guide us and for your words and not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so we're going to walk through this chapter right here and walk through um, the warning that's given, um, the command of repenting and bearing fruit, uh, and then the, the imperative of baptism. So as we walk through that in the warning, first thing we want to do is, who are the people involved? <clears throat> and it'll be important that you know who these people are because they're important. So the first one is, in those days was John the Baptist. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Okay, so what's really cool, if you're a man's man, this is your man. Okay, John the Baptist, he wears camel hair. He eats locusts right, and honey. He has a belt made of leather, and he lives off the land in the wilderness. He is an absolute man, and he is very authoritative. Um, he addresses, he sees this group of men, he sees these Sadducees and these Pharisees, and he starts off, he goes, hey, you, brood of vipers. Those aren't very nice words, are they? Calling someone a snake. And I think oftentimes, like, oh, man. You get this picture of Jesus and his disciples with his blonde flowing hair and he's so nice and meek. 
This is direct, isn't it? Okay, so this is the man you're, you see. He is John the Baptist. He was promised of the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 40 says, there will be one crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way. So this is what you see him doing. He's proclaiming Christ. He's baptizing for confession of sin, removal of sin, once for all baptism, not a temple cleansing ceremonial act. Now, we're going to take a little bit of a departure here as a side note, um, because it's important you see what also goes into John the Baptist. It's not the theme of this chapter, but it's important that you connect some biblical dots. Um, the Bible teaches us many things, and we want to see them, and they're not always there blatantly, but they are there. So when it comes to John the Baptist, I want you to see some just key texts here that help put together a very important truth. Okay? Some people would say the Bible doesn't address abortion. I don't understand what the big deal is. The Bible doesn't use the word abortion, but the Bible does define what a baby is. Okay? Let's go to Luke chapter 1, 15 and 16. Again, this is about John the Baptist. His mother is Elizabeth. And the angel talks to her. He says, For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. That's a person, isn't it? That's a person who has the Holy Spirit, not post-womb, in the womb. Is that pretty clear in the text? Okay, let's keep working our way. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So what do we see him doing right away in Matthew 3? Telling Israel to repent and follow Jesus. This is exactly what he's doing. Luke 1, 41-42 when Elizabeth, this is John the Baptist's mother, heard the greeting of Mary, mother of Jesus, the baby leaped in her womb. That's a baby in the womb committing an action with emotion. That's a person. Not a human. That's a person. It's pretty clear, isn't it? That's a person. 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So why are we saying that? The Bible is clear. If you kill a person, that's murder. The Bible says same word for baby out of the womb is the same word for baby in the womb. It's not matter. It's not a material object. It's not a human without a conscience. It's not, a, not yet a person. It is a person commits an action, that has a feeling. Now I say that not to condemn anybody. If you've had an abortion, God loves you. Christ died for you. You're forgiven of that sin. But the Bible does speak. It's a baby. And as Christians, we need to know what the Word of God says, and we need to go to it. And when we hear Christians arguing one way and the world arguing another, the Word of God is the clarity that we need to bring it about. This is what John the Baptist does with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He comes to them. He calls them. Look, you brood of vipers. You snakes. You look at <clears throat> that comment. You brood of vipers. He's saying, you snakes. What is Satan called in the garden? Snake, serpent. What does Jesus say in John 8? He says, you Sadducees, Pharisees, you are 
children of the devil. What does the devil do, he says in John 8? He is the father of lies. He lies. So brood of vipers saying, you intentionally try to fool people with lies. This is who you are. Now, I want you to see this. He, does Jesus come onto the scene? He's like, man, John, you were really mean to those Pharisees and Sadducees. You should be nicer. You could have used better words. Do you see that in the text? No, you see Jesus. He's very direct. Now, I want you to catch this. He's direct with who? Religious people. Religious people. And what does he say to them? He says, you should know better. You were warned, verse 7. You were warned to flee from the wrath to come. Saying, you have the Bible. You should know better. But then contrast that. How does Jesus address people who don't know better? How does he address the Gentiles, the non-Christians, people who didn't? That's what the book of John is great for. You go to the first encounter, John 4. He sees a woman in adultery. He's like, hey, you need to change. You need living water. He's very gentle. Saying, hey, you don't know this, but I'm telling you. You need to change. You need to follow me. I'm the water you need. How does he address the religious people? Brood of vipers. You should know better. And so you see that contrast in the word of God. And he's pointing back to the word of God. You were warned, Sadducees and Pharisees. So who are the Sadducees? They're this group, small group. It's always interesting that these factions that cause so much pain, it is a small group of people that make a large amount of noise. Not much has changed, huh? So you have the Sadducees, and there are a group of people, and they mainly are concerned with the politics. Why? Because their relationship to Rome allows them to be rich and have money and live wealthy. See, Rome cared what's called the Hapax Romana, the Roman peace, right? That there would be peace in the land. So they were trying to keep peace among the Jews so that Rome didn't have to worry about an uprising, a war, murder, all the things that cause chaos. Keep the peace. So they would be there to try and keep the Jews happy and satisfied so they could stay rich and wealthy. And they would only adhere to a small amount of the scriptures, but what they really cared about were the commentary on the commentary on the commentaries. They started making up rules. That's compared to the Pharisees who hated Rome. They're looking at the Old Testament going, we're supposed to have a king and a kingdom. Rome should be bowing to us. This is our land. And they uphold the scriptures to a more stricter, fuller sense But what's interesting is you have these two groups who disagree and they hate each other, but what unites them? Their hatred for Jesus. Their hatred for Jesus. And John calls them out. He says, you brood of vipers, you should know better. See, what's happening is you have people that are coming and they're Jews and they're being baptized. They're confessing sin in verse 6. And what are the Pharisees not doing? They're not getting baptized and they're not confessing their sin. Well, why? Because they don't need to. Well, why? Because they believe they're saved by works. They've created their own system. They've created their own rules. This is why they always try to trap Jesus. Did you heal on the Sabbath? Are you breaking the law? And they keep adding these rules and they're trying to be in a place of superiority. Superiority. 
And essentially what they're trying to do is say, if I do something bad, I just got to make up for it some other way. If I treat my wife or my children poorly, if I have lust in my heart or I hate someone, I just got to go over here and maybe give some more money, maybe got to volunteer in Sunday school. You know, in their context, like maybe I'll just I'll throw a lamb out there, throw a dove. So how does the Old Testament end? You look at Malachi. God's saying, I don't want your sacrifices. They're polluted. They're wrong. They're dirty. And he ends Malachi by saying, I will send one to prepare the way. I will send Elijah, is what he says. And then Jesus later on says, Elijah was sent in who? John the Baptist. So for 400 years, you have this looming prophecy that God is rejecting their sacrifice and their worship and that someone's going to come and prepare the way of the king, the lamb, to take away the sins of the world. Now you have the convergence of the Christ, the one who is preparing the way, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees who are giving the terrible offerings. See, because what's commanded in the Old Testament isn't just actions. It's intent that match the action. What am I saying? In the Old Testament, read Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. There was no heart behind the action. See, when you give a blemished offering to the Lord, you're saying, oh, this should do, that'll take it away. And God's saying, you don't give me an offering to take it away. You give me an offering because you love me. Saying, I love the Father. Here's my absolute best. Father, here's my best, God. I love you and I trust you so much. He says, I I know what you're going to say, Pharisees and Sadducees. No, we're, we're of Abraham. We have the right lineage. We have the right family tree. We are saved. We don't need to be in that water. We don't need to confess sins. And he goes, oh yeah? God can raise up stones that are from Abraham. Your family tree gets you nowhere. Now, for some of you, you need to think about this. That's really comforting because your family tree is jacked up, right? It's crazy. And he's like, your family tree doesn't save you. That's okay. Doesn't matter if you came from chaos and heathenism because that's not what saves you. But to the Christian who's grown up Christian, just because your parents, 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 parents were Christian doesn't make you Christian. That's what he's getting at. Saying you don't repent and and have fruit that bears of that repentance. Therefore, Jesus is going to bring the axe and he's going to cut the tree. He's going to burn the trash. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Look right in your text. Verse 10, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. And he goes down in 12. He's got a fork in his hand. He's going to clear the floor. He's going to gather the wheat. He's going to burn the chaff. In an unquenchable fire. Sounds eternal. It's unquenchable. Eternal fire. He's laying it down to the Pharisees and the Sadducees the religious people to simply say, all I need to do is just make things right. Whatever I got bad over here, I just got to make it good over here. They've divorced the heart 
from the action. When you look at Abraham, he has a servant. God says, go. He says, yes, God. I will go wherever you want me to go. God says, give me your firstborn. Okay, God, I'll give you my son. Goes to Moses. Hey, you're going to go talk to Pharaoh. You're going to go make demand. Okay, God, whatever you want. These are servants. These are servants. Say, God, whatever you would desire, I trust you. I love you. He's saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you don't love the Father. And therefore, you are not going to love the Son. You love yourselves. You make your own rules, satisfy those rules, and then think you're better than everybody else. You need to be warned. And so that's the dilemma you find yourself in with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They're divorcing what God gives from who God is. They want the benefits of the relationship without actually having the relationship. We understand this with children, don't we? They want the benefits of being your child, money and freedom. Hey, but let's hang out. No, I'm good. I'm going to hang out with my friends. But no relationship. But they want the benefits. But how was it when they were a child? Well, they just loved you. You were amazing. They love that relationship. And then they get older. They don't need the relationship, but they want the benefits. It's the same way with our relationship with God, isn't it? We come to Christ. We love him. We adore him. He saved us. He redeemed us. So passionate. So much. And then we grow up. Well, I don't need him. I'm good now. I'm mature now. I can do it on my own. Oh, I can fix that. I'll just give a little bit more. I'll spend a little bit more time. I'll be extra nice. I'll help an old lady. I'll go to a charity. I'll go to a dinner. I'll say nice things to someone who doesn't deserve it. The benefits without the relationship. Want to be saved to heaven, but not saved from our sins. So how do you know if you're saved from your sins? This is how he goes in. There needs to be, verse 8, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. There needs to be an actual turning away from the sin. So why is he getting into this? Because they're just giving sacrifices. Oh yeah, I sinned. Here you go. Does this make it right? Does this make it right? That's not a repentance. That's just, that's just an appeasement. Okay, God, are you happy now? Am I good? I still get my position. I still get my blessing. I still get my power. I still get my prestige. I still get heaven. They're all working. This is in complete opposite of John the Baptist, who, by the way, is called the greatest man ever born of a woman by Jesus. When you look at his life, he's living in the desert, dressed in camel hair, eating insects. That doesn't sound blessed, does it? And how is it in for John the Baptist? In prison, where his head gets to be a party gift for a princess who wants it. When you look at that, he's not very blessed. And he's called the greatest man born of woman. Not because he had money, not because he had health, because he was obedient to his father, serving his son in any and all circumstances. So this is what we're getting at the heart of it. So repenting, repenting is caring about who you're sinning against, caring about the action, not just solely caring about the consequence. 
Oftentimes, when we're dealing with some type of affair, you'll see a man or you'll see a woman and they're weeping and they're crying. And you're like, oh man, that person, they're broken. They, they care so much. And you say, why are you so sad? And they'll say, because I can't have that relationship anymore. They're mourning the loss of the relationship, the loss of the affair. Not that they've cheated on their spouse and ruined their kids. They're mourning the loss of what the sin did for them. Many times, if you were to tell someone, hey, no one will ever know, no one will ever find out, would you keep doing that sin? Oh yeah, I'd keep doing it. Because they care about the consequence, not who the sin is against, not the act itself. So false repentance is mourning the consequence. It's mourning the loss of how the sin benefits us. Not mourning, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my Father. I've sinned against my Savior. He said no, and I said yes. You're like, I don't know where you're getting at. You're kind of crazy. Let's look at some Old Testament passages really quick. Psalm 51, 3 through 4. David has committed adultery. He has then murdered the husband of that wife, and he finds himself an adulterer and a murderer. And this is, he's been confronted by Nathan, the prophet, and this is what he writes. For I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned. And I have done what is evil in your sight. In your sight. Who is he sinning against? God. Why is he mourning his sin? Because he sinned against God. The mourning, the care, the passion. I sinned against God. I don't want to do that. Why? Because there's a relationship with the Father. This is what you see in the Old Testament. These men love God. These women, they love God. And they trust Him with their whole heart. And there's this relational peace where I don't want to sin against you. You said no. Like, well, that's one example. Okay, let's go to two. Genesis 39.9. You see Joseph. Joseph has been attempted murder by his brothers, sold into slavery, and a prisoner. He works himself up. He finds himself a servant in his master's house. And Potiphar, his master, his wife now, throws herself at Joseph and says, no one will ever know. No one will ever know. And this is Joseph's response. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. He's like, my master, Potiphar, he's, he isn't held back at all. I have no reason to treat him this way. No reason. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? God. Not Potiphar. How can I do this to God? Now mind you, does Joseph have any benefits that would cause him to say this? He's been attempted to be killed by his family, sold to slavery, living in prison. This isn't a cost-benefit analysis. This isn't, I don't want to lose my house, so I better not sin against God. I don't want to lose my nice 
good life. She says, no, 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 no. I can't do that against God because he says it's wicked. I can't do that against him. That is the driving force in true repentance. I have sinned against God and I can no longer do it. So that's the question for us is when we look at our sin, do we view it as I have sinned against God? Or do we typically use this phrase, my sin's not hurting anybody, so it doesn't really matter. No one will know. We see this with addiction, abuse, pornography, same-sex attraction. It's not hurting anyone else. It doesn't matter who it does or doesn't hurt. God said no. That's why it matters. And if we love him, it matters to us. Just as it did David. Just as it did Joseph. And just as it didn't, Pharisees, Sadducees. The relationship is divorced. This is why when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to flip the narrative. You have heard it said, but I tell you, from the mouth speaks the heart. Murder is in the heart. Lust is in the heart. Can't divorce the heart from the action. Jesus draws them back to the Old Testament. It's been there the whole time. So then repentance is turning away from the sin. You're grieving the sin. You're mourning the sin. You're turning away from it. It's a full turn, and you're going towards Christ. You're going towards God, and you're bearing fruit out of that mourning. That repentance is causing a change, and it's producing things that are godly. Well, then how do you bear fruit? John 15 tells us, you remain, you abide in the vine. Jesus, that's a relationship. Spending time with Jesus. You spend time with him and you produce fruit. So this is getting at that same concept, only it's saying repentance causes fruit. Okay, so let's walk through that a little bit. So I want you to connect the imagery going on. Galatians 5.22 walks through the fruit of the Spirit. It says these are the fruit you're to have. So let's look at how repentance can drive fruit. Love, first one, right? Well, when we look at our sin and we see that we have sinned against God, we've been warned, we know better, and yet He still loves us. Heaven is still our home. Christ is still our Savior. He loves us. He's saying the fruit of that is when someone sins against us, how do we not love them? How do we not understand the love the Father has given and then apply it to other people? We don't deserve that love. They don't deserve that love. Repentance drives the love. Because in that sin, you feel and see and know the love of the Father. And it drives you to love in the same way. Joy. See, sin is what we think will make us happy. And it does temporarily. And then it lets you down. And it lets you down. And it lets you down. And we keep going back. And then it crushes you. And the only thing you have is the joy of your salvation. Christ died for you. Heaven is your home. This, this sin is paid for. There will be no more sorrow, no more shame, no more suffering. There will be heaven. And that joy can never be taken from you. 
It is in that repenting you experience and see the joy of your salvation. And then that joy, no matter how hard circumstances you experience and you give that joy, you know that joy that God loves you. Christ died for you. You're his. That's a joy that can't be taken. And it's a joy your sin could never give. Peace. When we sin, we're at war with God. Paul says that in his flesh, it often wars with his spirit because God says no in his spirit, but we say yes in our flesh and they war at each other. And in that war, repentance is the end of the war because we say, no, God is right. It is wrong. I am done being at war with God. Therefore, I'm turning away from my sin at peace. I will not fight with God. He said no. He told me to forgive. He told me to be faithful in my marriage. He told me to not be filled with envy and jealousy and drunkenness. He told me not to. I'm going to be full of the Spirit. I am at peace with God. Repentance, driving fruit. Patience. We're still breathing, right? Check yourself. God is patient. We don't deserve to still be here. We don't deserve this over and over and over again. We fall. We don't learn. We fall. We don't learn. He's patient. He's patient. He's patient. We're sinning again. He's patient. Okay. Okay, let's turn. So when we see people who make us mad and don't do things the way, we're like, why aren't you smarter? It's like, oh, yeah, God's patient with me. Produces a patience. I can be patient. As God is with me, I should with you. Kindness. Kindness. It's in repenting where we're dealing with our sin. We're confessing it before the Father. And he is kind and he says, turn. Come back this way. Follow Christ. Follow me in his kindness. And it's in kindness we offer it to people who don't deserve it. Who have been mean to us. Who have wronged us. In the same way we've wronged the Father. We see kindness being produced out of repentance. Goodness. In goodness, you see, that's the moral quality that God has. It's the moral standard. When we sin, God said no, and we realize, wow, that is bad. The consequences of an affair, terrible. The consequences of an addiction, terrible. The consequences of not forgiving are terrible. It's wrong. Therefore, I want to turn and not do that again because it's wrong and it's against God and I don't want to do that. So I'm going to be good in my character. That pain causes me to say, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to do that again. It put me at war with God. It isolated me from God. I don't want to do that. Therefore, I'm going to be good. I'm going to do what God asks you know, and sometimes we're like, God, I don't understand why that's a sin. I would have you say this. Sometimes you just need to trust God's ways better. When your kids keep doing this to you, but why can't I do it? Why can't I do it? Sometimes it's like, I don't care why. You just can't. Stop. You ever get there? Okay. Sometimes that's where it's at with God. Just stop. Maybe in heaven you'll get to know why. But he said no. And we care about him. Therefore, we say no, and we go his direction. What he says is good. Right? Faithfulness. God didn't give up on you. Right? He loved you. He stayed with you. He, died. he sent his son to die for you. 
He was going to heaven to prepare a home for you. He's faithful. He's faithful. 400 years later out of the Old Testament, he comes through. He sends his, what? John the Baptist, the messenger, sends his son, the Savior. Just like he said he would. Keeps his word. Therefore, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be John the Baptist. I'm wearing camel hair and locusts in prison. Be faithful. Circumstances don't change love. Circumstances don't change faithfulness. He was faithful to me here in my stand. Faithful out of it. Gentleness, he ushers us in. He kindly brings us back. And then self-control. We now have a desire to say, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. Sin hurts. Sin's painful. Sin lets me down. It over-promises, under-delivers. And man, I just can't do that. I need to be controlled or restrained. So this is what he's saying. There needs to be fruit comes out of the repentance or the repentance is false. And the tree doesn't bear fruit and it's thrown in the fire. It's the plain reading of the text. This is the warning he gives to them. And then he moves on in his text. He says, look, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I'm not worthy to carry. Do you see the beauty of John the Baptist? He is so bold on one hand. You snakes, you've been warned. You will burn. And then he comes over here in full humility. The one coming, I can't, I can't even take his sandals. He is greater than I. He is mightier than I. He's saying, I follow him. I'm baptizing in his name. We're repenting in his name. We're turning for our sins because he's the lamb that's going to take away the sins of the world. That's in John. Just John the Baptist says, behold the lamb to take away the sins of the world. He's in charge. He's the Savior. I follow him. He will baptize with spirit and fire. Spirit, God's spirit will now dwell in us to help us not sin, to help us know what to do, to help us know what not to do, to help us love God, love God's word, love God's people, bear fruit and fire judgment. He's going to judge the world, right and wrong. His children will go to heaven. The children of the devil will go to hell. There's no in-between. He's coming. This is who he is. His fork in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor, gather the weeds, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. He's saying that is what we are doing in this baptism. It is a symbolic act that we are being saved from the wrath of God. That our sins are once for all paid for. This is why it's a once for all baptism. Now, here's some things we need to gather. Water has significant imagery in the Bible. I want you to think through this. What does water do in Noah's flood? It destroys. It brings judgment. Later on, in the New Testament, Jesus is called the what? The ark. That one who brings you through the water, through the judgment, and gives life. 
Noah's ark gave temporary life. Jesus gives eternal life. Jesus is the greater ark. What do we see in Moses in Exodus? We see him part the water. Moses brings the people through the water. And then the water destroys the Egyptians. Moses brings them through the water to live years in the land. Jesus brings us through the water, eternal life. Jesus brings us through the judgment. Right? That's image one. Image two, it talks about in the New Testament, buried with Christ. Boom. Immersion, right? Full immersion. Buried. Sin stays. Risen. Christ is risen. You're a new creation. Your sins are forgiven. You're clean. You were dirty. Right? Old Testament, filthy garments. Boom, clean, made new, white as snow. Risen to be with him in heaven forever when it's all done. So this is the imagery you see in baptism. Now what else do we see? It's public. It's publicly announcing my sins are paid for. They're buried. I follow Christ. I follow Jesus. Jesus is baptism. The confession and payment for sins, baptism. So this is what you see now. John is saying this, and now he comes into a conversation where Jesus comes and says, and now you, you need to baptize me. And John's like, what? That's really confusing. You're the God-man. You're the king. You should be baptizing me, which is funny whenever you acknowledge you're talking to God, but then you try to tell him what to do. Isn't that funny, right? Like you acknowledge he's God, but then you, you think he doesn't. Anyway, so... Verse 15 says, Jesus answered him, let it be so. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Does Jesus need to be saved? No. It's not a saving act. The saving act is trusting in Christ as the payment for your sin, that it is buried and he rose and he conquered and you trust that payment and therefore you have a trust, follow relationship with him as your savior and as king. We're like, where are you getting the king thing from? Going, we one and two, but look at verse two, repent for the kingdom heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven, that's a way of saying God. It's a way of saying the king of heaven. You go back to Daniel two, it says God of heaven will come and establish his kingdom. So when they're, when they're hearing this, again, Jewish, they know Daniel, wait, God's here, king's here. The king, God, baptized, king, savior, baptized, he's saying yes, because it's fitting for righteousness. See, because in his humanity, Jesus is the representative of humanity. Adam, our first representative, fails, sins. We're all born out of sin. Jesus comes, humanity does what we cannot do, lives perfectly. So this is a part of right relationship, righteousness. It's fitting for righteousness. A public declaration in front of people that Christ is the payment for your sin. You trust that payment. You're going to follow him forever. And when you sin, you sin against him. And when you sin against him, you repent and you bear fruit. It is a public declaration. He says, I need to do this to show those who I'm leading, those who I represent. 
I'm representing perfect obedience, even obedience unto death on a cross, taking on the wrath of God. And then at the end of Matthew, he says, go, baptize, submerge. Now, at LBC, we take baptism um, for people who are able to put their faith and trust in Jesus and say, I know he paid for my sin. And I want to follow him forever. They're able to make that uh, attestation. They're able to make that conviction. So we wait until they're able to do that. Now, sometimes people will get rebaptized. You don't need to get rebaptized, but sometimes they do. But why? Well, because they would tell us, you know, when I did that when I was younger, or I did it when I was older, I did it for my parents, I did it for my friends, I did it for a girl, I did it because I thought it would get me out of trouble, I thought it would change my health. I didn't know what I was doing. I know what I'm doing now. I want to redo it. Okay, let's do it. Because what they're saying is I never really did it the first time. So let's do it a second time. Again, it's not a saving act. It's a symbol, but it is commanded. And Jesus did it. And he says it is fitting for righteousness for us to do that. So that's why we do it. It's a part of that declaration. So Jesus, boom, submerged. What happens? get to see the Trinity for the very first time. You get to see Jesus, the Son, ascended on by the Spirit, communicated by the Father. Look at this text. It says that the heavens opened up and the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice of heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Trinitarian, the Father sins, the Son goes, and the Spirit seals. Three working as one, saying, this is my Son, I am well pleased. Communicating to us, we need to be baptized. We need to be baptized. As Christ was baptized, this is my Son, whom I am well pleased. Contrasting the Pharisees, we're getting the axe thrown into the fire. Our heart as Christians is we want the Father to say, this is my son, this is my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Amen? Is that, what, that is our heart, that is our desire? That starts when we see sin as a sin against God. And we say, God, I love you. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. So we repent. We turn from that sin and we say, I, I, I need to do what God says. I need to trust him. And we spend time with him. We abide with him. We remain in him. And we produce fruit. Some questions for us to consider uh, from this passage. What can you learn and apply from John the Baptist's life? There's many things. Whether you're poor and you have poor health and you think life is terrible, that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean God can't use you. It doesn't mean that you can't be faithful. Look no further than John the Baptist. He's your guide. So many things, faithfulness in his life. Greatest man born of a woman. He's told, by baptize Jesus. Okay, I'll baptize Jesus. What are the differences between true and false repentance? When am I mourning the consequence of sin? And when am I mourning that I sinned against God? Do I know the difference in my own life? That leads to three. Are there sins in your life that you have not repented of, what's getting in the way? 
Oftentimes, the reason we don't repent from sin, we don't turn from sin, because that sin comforts us. That addiction numbs us. That affair excites us. That lack of forgiveness gives us power to hold and justice and revenge to hold. And if we leave that, if we leave that, it'll leave us hurt and wounded and empty. So we hold on to that sin, even though it, it only satisfies us a little bit and it's only temporary. That little bit, that temporary is better than nothing. So we don't turn. We say it's bad. We say it's wrong. We don't turn. To turn is to say that sin is a lie. It won't comfort me. It won't heal me. It won't make me whole. Only Christ will make me whole. Only Christ can love me perfectly. That's what David does. And he bears the consequence for his sin. But he never loses the comfort of the Father. That's why he says, cast me not away from your presence. Because he knows God will make him whole. That affair did not make him whole. That murder did not make him whole. Only God makes him whole. Four, after seeing John the Baptist's example in Matthew 3, do you need to be more courageous or more humble? The courage of John the Baptist. You Pharisees, that's sin. You need to repent and bear fruit. He's bold. He's honest. And he points them to Jesus. He points them to the one who is to come. And he tells them to repent. He is courageous. He goes out and proclaims this because God told him he's faithful. He's calling out. He's preparing the way. There's new baptism. And he's coming. He's going to give the Spirit. He's doing this in faith. But then he's humble. I can't even carry his sandals. He's the king. I worship him. I love him. I'm not worthy of him. So you need some humility. Because maybe there's some arrogance that says, that's not a sin. I don't need to worry about that. It's not hurting anybody. Or do you need some humility and say, you know what? God says it's wrong. I trust him. I'm not even worthy. I don't even know why I'm trying to tell him what to do. I need some humility. Five, how does knowing Jesus is both king, judge, and savior help shape your relationship with Jesus? Because that's going to be the tension all through the book. They see a king and not a savior. They see a savior. They don't see a king. The king tells us what to do. The savior pays for us. The king provides for us. The savior takes us to be with the father. And it is both realities coming together in the text. The king savior that John is fully in love with. Fully worshiping. And it is Jesus and his, his humanity that is being fully obedient. And the father is looking down and he's saying, this is my son, I am well pleased. We see him in his humanity and say, I need to be like him to do the will of the father so that I might one day hear that my father is well pleased. That is the heart of us all, amen? Let's pray. God, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. Uh, we thank you for Matthew chapter three. It just walks us through what it means to trust you, what it means to love you, what it means to repent and turn away from sin because you are the king. You are the one who decides right and wrong. And against you, we sin when we sin. And it is to you we need to confess. And it's to you we need to change. It is to you we need to be like. 
God, I pray that you would cause us to mourn our sin. You would wreck our hearts in a way that causes us to change. I pray you would comfort us in that pain, that you love us. You forgive our sin. You paid for our sin. You have a plan. You know what's going on. And whether we're mighty or weak, rich or poor, you use us. You love us. We're your children. And we'd be comforted in that reality that we are your children. And it is our prayer that we would act in a way and live in a way that you are well pleased. Be with us as we go into a time of worship that we would sing passionately about the one who paid for our sins, passionately about the one who comforts us, passionately about the one who walks with us, who's faithful to us, who never leaves us, never forsakes us.